Hello and welcome. Uh, my, my name is Konstantin Kogan, and again, I'm your host at Holistic Investment, and it is my pleasure to host today Richard Byworth, CEO of Diginex. Uh, so Richard has a great journey from BNP Paribas, Namur, and other great companies, uh, uh, and now he's a CEO of uh, the company that was li recently listed on NASDAQ, uh, and uh, has Diginex is like as a group is a, there's a part of investment bank exchange cust custody and a lot of other business uh, lines that we're going to talk about today. But before we jump in, uh, so I have to throw a legal disclaimer as always. So this content is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material, uh, legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. So hi, Richard. Hey, Constantin. Thanks for having me. Great yeah. to be here. Nice to have you here. And again, like we met before the COVID era. Now, like uh, you're in Hong Kong, I'm in New York, and uh, it's a great pleasure. And I know you have some exciting news uh, uh, with Diginex. But before we jump into the news, I just wanna, um, I just wanna, uh, for you to share your story. How did you end up in crypto? Because I know you have uh, a tremendous career in traditional finance. And then I'm happy to talk about your latest updates. Yeah, sure. So thanks, uh, thanks for the uh, opportunity again, Constantin. Um, so that I started my career in investment banking. I was a trader in London and uh, I transitioned pretty quickly into sales. So I was running distribution for Nomura uh, across various different products. Um, and at about the time of the financial crisis, I got to a point of real concern around money printing and, uh, and what we would doing or what we were able to do to really hedge against what was happening to our money. And so I started buying gold. Uh, a few of the guys on my desk were talking about Bitcoin, but they certainly weren't talking about it in the context of, of wealth protection. Um, and so I completely ignored it, unfortunately. Um, but uh, what I ended up doing was just reading, uh, reading a book, uh, Sapiens, about the subject. And uh, it was about many things. It was about societal frameworks and beliefs. And it really impacted a lot of the way that I thought about the world. And I'd been a little bit concerned about some of the changes that were happening in the world. Uh, Brexit was the one that affected me the most directly. Suddenly my passport wasn't a European passport anymore. And uh, yeah, it just had, had thrown up a lot of questions. So I'd, I'd read this book and it was just at a very meaningful moment. And uh, one of the things that it talks about is the construct of, of societal belief around money and um, and how it's a belief system and uh, it's just really what creates the best transmission and store of value. And um, it talks a lot about Bitcoin. And I just didn't understand why this book was talking about Bitcoin in the context of money. For me, it was just like some scammy internet currency and uh, I hadn't paid much attention to it. So at that point, I started reading about it more broadly, um, trying to understand what it was and just completely fell down uh, the rabbit hole. Um, I remember in May of 2017, just announcing to the whole trading desk, everybody needs to buy Bitcoin. We need to buy Bitcoin. We need to get as much of it as possible. And it was about a thousand US dollars at the time. And, um, and I remember I'd gone away on holiday and I'd come back and I'd said to my grad, I said, look, did you get did you buy everyone Bitcoin? Did you sort it all out? Because, uh, you know, we'd, we'd given him the sort of the, the tech guy positioning to be able to work all of this out. He's like, I didn't think you were serious. 
So uh, by that time, uh, it had already run to about $3,000. So we're like, right, okay, we're just going to do this ourselves. And so, yeah, got, got very heavily involved. Uh, then I invested in Diginex. Diginex is a, uh, was back then, it was a cryptocurrency mining business. And I'd invested it really as a yield play on the asset class. And, um, and then when I left banking, I was actually joining a, a venture capital firm. But the founder uh, of, of Diginex uh, approached me and said, look, do you think you could help me come and build a financial services firm for this massive opportunity that I see around blockchain and its, its uh, related technology and the assets, asset classes being produced by? So we sat down and we, we fleshed it out. And um, today we're at a point where we've got the full ecosystem across everything. Um, so, you know, we started with the premise that we needed an investment bank, actually, because it was at the time of everyone doing these ICOs and like, look, this is just, this is just really bad. This is going to get the industry shut down and we need to have proper advice and clearly position these things as securities and operate as an investment bank where we originate deals, we distribute those deals. And we offer people the opportunity to have transmission of those securities in digital form rather than paper. And so that really started the first pillar of, of what we ended up building. That's Diginex Capital today. Diginex Capital is a securitization advisory fund mm -hmm. um, that, that rather than go to all our investors and say, hey, you need to be buying digital assets. We actually changed the, the, the way that we position it actually quite significantly. And we, we position ourselves as a boutique securitization firm that offers securitizations and distributions thereof. But you also have the point either now or in the future of taking those securities in digital form. And I think that was, that, that, that is a key way that we need to help drive the industry forward for us. You know, if you, if you go to a Japanese pension fund right now and you say, hey, do you want to invest in a digital security? Uh, it's a really interesting security. These are all the attributes and it's digital. They're like, well, what does digital security mean? You go, okay, what's well, a blockchain-based security? Okay, what's well, a blockchain? Well, it's a, you know, a, a, a distributed ledger and, you know, you can have different types of blockchains and different protocols. And they're like, what, what's a protocol? And, and just basically you end up with all these series of questions it's like, look, I'm just not interested. This is too hard. And so you get to a point where even if you converted that portfolio manager, you'd end up having to get him to convert his entire risk committee, his entire investment committee, and maybe even his board. So <clears throat> it just falls into the bucket of too hard. And I think this is the problem we have in, in the industry is that everybody's just trying to push all these institutional investors off into the deep end and not really actually offering them a solution um, that they can, they can take on board. So, um, you know, that's always the, the way that we're thinking about it. And uh, we're trying to actually help the rest of the industry focus on security tokens and digital securities in the same way. But sorry, you asked me how I got into the industry and I ended up ra rambling on. No, I think it's a, it's a great introduction and I feel your pain. I'm not coming from the same background, but I'm, I'm, I'm facing the same challenges as you do, right? And uh, mm. so let's, let's jump uh, directly into your different divisions, right? So again, October, uh, like first, 
you know, this this month, literally what two weeks ago, right? You became the first mm-hmm. the currency exchange to be listed uh, on Nasdaq and uh, with ticker Ecos and it's uh, E Q O S. Just because I tried to find it, I, I mixed it with some other <laughs> ticker. So yeah, yeah, just in case if people cannot find it, and we did the disclaimer, so it's not a uh, suggestion to mm-hmm. buy. But um, so you have different yeah. divisions, right? You have four major divisions, right? So, so equals yeah. here you have, it's a, which is a, an exchange, right? So indigenous capital. Uh, you mentioned the securitization advisory business um, and mm-hmm. uh, the custody business. So, so guide us maybe like kind of briefly on each division, like on how they relate together, how do they work in the, and then we, I'm happy to talk about what value does it actually bring to the ecosystem? Sure. So, I mean, first of all, we've got to understand the way that we the, the way that we came at all of this was to really hit the the broad vision of the organisation, and that's to bring digital assets to the world. And when when I say to the world, what do I mean by that? I mean it to everyone, from a retail trader through to an institutional trader. There's no reason why retail traders wouldn't want to have institutional infrastructure and structure around everything that they're trying to do around a brand new asset class. Um, and so we, we felt very, very strongly that it needs to be for everyone. So at the center of it all is Equos, our exchange, spelled slightly differently to the ticker. The, it, we have a U in the exchange name, E-Q-U-O-S. Um, but Equos was really designed to, to alleviate a lot of the concerns that I think people have had around the industry. I mean, like even in the last two weeks, You've had Qcoin hacked, BitMEX charged by the CFTC, OKEX, I'm not quite sure what's happening over there, but some, you know, if someone's been arrested, they have the keys. It's like Quadriga all over again. So you're in a situation where even those three fairly well-known exchange names, and two of them particularly, are getting taken down either by regulators or police or, or, or hackers. And all of these things are things that have stopped people coming into this industry. So, you know, you mentioned the fact that we're listed on NASDAQ. For us, that was actually a really important requirement. By having that sort of level of transparency and oversight of, you know, being an SEC uh, approved company, being a NASDAQ listed company, and NASDAQ is an exchange, is a regulator themselves. It gives that level of transparency and you know, mitigates a lot of the concerns around um, some exchange practices that I think many, many institutions and retail investors have. And so, you know, if you think from an institutional perspective, they're always going to be worried about reputation. You're never going to have BlackRock operate on one of these platforms because it's just like headline risk, don't need it you know, going to lose half a trillion dollars of assets if they end up, you know, getting involved in an exchange that gets hacked or, or, or has some uh, regulatory issue. And then on the other end, you've got retail like, well, yeah, I really would like to buy Bitcoin, but I don't know who any of these people are and I don't want to have my money stolen when I send it over to some bank account. I'm not quite sure about. Generally, these are, these are not bank accounts you've heard of in everyday life. And so by being that NASDAQ listed company that, that everybody sees under the scrutiny of NASDAQ, of the SEC, 
having to file um, and be very transparent about the way that we operate and govern our business, it just alleviates a lot of those concerns. And then obviously we've always been focused on regulation. So we uh, operate in Singapore uh, under an exemption under what's referred to as the Payment Services Act. Um, so that's really focused on uh, you know, providing regulation to digital payment token exchanges, as they call them, and uh, allowing the industry to really grow. Right, so it's a little bit more, while a very credible regulator, a little bit light touch in terms of allowing for innovation to grow. So we've, we've always tried to work with regulators across the world and we, in different aspects of our business, work with different regulators. Um, I think then, obviously, for, for the exchange itself, making sure that you have proper institutional functionality. So, for example, you know, if... JP Morgan were to onboard to an exchange, they would need to have segregation of duty. They would need their operations team to have a certain level of access. They would need their compliance team to have a certain level of access, their audit team, as well as their trading team, their portfolio managers, CIO, et cetera. They want everyone to have different levels of access. Mm -hmm. No exchanges in this space offer that. We've actually built all of that into Equos. It's all functional, buy sub-account, and you can have it all linked to different accounts. So this is just a basic requirement of institutions and something that we built from the very beginning. So it's really about trying to make sure that you've got that institutional tilt, but also providing retail that same benefit right? in, in, in the same way. They, they get access to a regulated exchange, to a NASDAQ-listed exchange. So may I, may I spice up our conversation? Because, you know, you've, you've mentioned very important uh, topic that I, I, I was like doubting whether we should bring it up or not. But uh, as you sure. brought up yourself about the OKX drama, like that is, like, I think what it does, it exposes the entire weakness of the, uh, uh, our, like, our industry, like, you know, and the infrastructure of the industry right now. Like, if you think about it, like, you know, so, we, uh, you know, OKX suspended all the withdrawals, right? One of the top probably five exchanges, the crypto exchanges. So all the key holders, like, you know, they've been out of touch. So, and, and what to me is a bit uh, insane in this story. So I understand like, you know, so there are some legal uh, complexities which nobody actually understands in details because like uh, uh, the, the jurisdiction is also like a very big problematic story because OKX is based in Malta, uh, part of it, which is part of the European Union, but they're also headquartered in Hong Kong where you are, right? And with offices in Singapore and San Francisco. So, I mean, right now we know, according to some of the media outlets that uh, the co-founder is saying the star he, he, he's been released from the police in Shanghai and it's... Uh, 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 they're continuing the investigation, but you know it's somehow moving along. But what is more important, and especially after also the Bitmax, like which is the largest derivative exchange in the industry, right, and had similar problems with their co-founder. I think what it shows us that the irony that the industry that actually is, uh, you know, that is uh, born in decentralized ethos, right, and you know, like and dominated by centralized businesses and certain vulnerabilities that we see, they exist even in, you know, the world of multi-sig protocols, right? So mm. how, uh, how basically, like, you know, your solution is um, attacking those potential challenges that, you know, any exchange can be a part of, actually? 
Yeah, so for, for us, I mean, obviously on the custody side, we have a, uh, we have a separate group. Um, so DigiVault is operated out of London um, by a, a team led by, uh, by an ex-Ministry um, of Defence um, security specialist. Um, so for us, you know, we have protocols and process that are, are handled in a way that uh, it just re- reduces key man risk. Um, I don't, I don't, as the CEO of the exchange, have access to any of the keys um, uh, that, that we deal with. Um, we're in the process of integrating our custodian to the exchange. Um, and actually, we have multiple custodian offerings. So the idea is that much like a, an investment firm, you have multiple places to uh, store your crypto assets. So you could go with BitGo or Digivolt or some other that will integrate down the road. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that's, that's one way. I think you, you raise another question, and this is an industry that's built on decentralization. And that comes back a little bit to what I was saying at the beginning around Diginex Capital, right? You can't just throw everybody in at the deep end and say, hey, this new decentralized technology can mean that we can decentralize anything. Because if you do want institutional participation, guess what? They don't have structures that allow them to be their own custodians. They can't do that. They need to have a viable third-party custodian. The way it works at the moment, it may change in the future along with the technology. And we often see that. You see technology lead and then sort of society and structures adapt as we kind of get to that point. But at, at, at this point in time, at this level of uh, nascency, we need to make sure that you have centralized organizations, but centralized organizations that you can trust. And that, again, it comes back to the NASDAQ listing and being focused on always building trust. So NASDAQ listing, being regulated, making sure that everybody comes from a background of understanding what regulation means, what it means to be a fit and proper person, right, in the eyes of a regulator. So these things are very, very core to the culture of Diginex and everything that we're building. Yeah, and and you know, in our firm also, like Way Financial, as I mentioned to you before the interview, and like being an IRA, you know, we have a fiduciary mm-hmm. responsibility to choose only qualified custodians. We cannot, we don't even have the luxury right now to work with someone who doesn't have this institutional grade uh, uh, security and compliance standards, right? So. I think uh, same like same exact uh, choices. You know, they they they're they're working for most of the firms who are trying to play like you know the, with this bigger picture. But again, so so if I would summarize what you just mentioned before, so there is no possibility that that stories with like OKX or Bitmax will can even potentially happen with Diginex, right? With uh, OKX and Bitmax. Yes. So they, they, they so w- with your infrastructure, there, there is no even opportunity that, like, for example, God forbid something happens, there is an investigation or like, you know, again, we, I mean, I don't wish you that, but I'm saying like, even if that happens just as a risk, as a systematic risk, right? So there is no option that you withdraw all, uh, all the holdings uh, of investors, for example, if I hold, you know, like my crypto with you. Yeah, no, that, that's not a concern. I mean, we have governance frameworks around the way that the keys are managed. Um, but 
if I were to stand here and say that we have no risk of ever being investigated by a regulator, I think that would be uh, that would be a really uh, foolish statement to make. Um, you know, we will always want to work with regulators as they seek to understand our business and they seek to understand the industry and how it can grow. Um, but I couldn't stand up here and say that we're never going to have an experience with a regulator where, you know, we're being investigated. That that happens across financial services as we as we always see um, with with the traditional space as well. Um, and it's just a case of always trying to make sure that from the very beginning, we're informing regulators about what we're doing. If the business pivots to changes, the regulators understand that and that we work closely with them in terms of sort of thinking about the way that legislation should be formed as, as this industry pivots and grows um, because it, it's, it's going to change. It's going to keep changing. We're brand new. We're so early with all of this. And I think certainly when it gets to the point of security tokens and digital securities, there's so much uh, to assess. I mean, obviously, the U.S. have recently stated that they really want to look into tokenization, which is broadly securitization with with digital digital securities, as we call them. Um, so it's net net the, the same thing. But I think that, yeah, we're, we're always going to have to work with educators, uh, sorry, regulators and and help educate, you know, wherever possible um, so that they can understand and they can understand how uh, to format legislation. Yeah, so no, that's, that, I think that, that side is clear. So I want to jump to another important topic. Uh, uh, so as I mentioned before, man, in my previous interview with, uh, with Michael Saylor from MicroStrategy, mm-hmm. and, uh, I'm sure by now, like uh, a lot of folks know what uh, that you know, right now there's a publicly traded company in NASDAQ, you know, they, they acquired uh, uh, $425 million worth of Bitcoin, which is about 28% uh, of their entire market cap. And right now, uh, as we're speaking uh, today, you know, like it's on October 19th, uh, the worth of this of, of this of this portfolio of Bitcoin, which is thirty eight thousand two hundred fifty, it's already four hundred forty four million dollars. So, do you have a monitor on your screen updating you as the value of yeah. Michael Saylor's portfolio? <laughs> I, I, actually, I actually do. You're joking. <laughs> <laughs> I, actually, I could see you reading off it. I was like, okay, yeah, he's definitely got that. No, I, I actually do, and I have. I monitor eighteen other companies like. Um, uh, mm. So there is uh, two websites. One is BitcoinTreasury.org, and there is a, a, a bit, a BitcoinTreasuryReserve.com. So I uh, one is like just information, other more visual. So and uh, yeah, so we we heard some news from Square, you know, acquiring about fifty million dollar position, and there are other companies, right? Some of them publicly traded. Some are uh, one private company like Stone Ridge Holdings and. And then other like ETF like companies uh, like Grayscale, CoinShares, and others. Three uh, AQ. Yeah. Now my question to you is, it's still a drop in the ocean, right? You know, the the entire uh, worth of this portfolio is about you know seven billion dollars, right? Which is again, it's a big deal. Like like I don't want to like undervalue it. So I, I'm I have a huge respect for all the people who are doing this because this is paving you know like the entire road you know it can. Uh, structure for other companies to do it, right? But I, I, we, we have to see hundreds of companies to join the game so that will become the bigger player, right? So what is your view on that? What's going to happen next, do you think? 
Um, I, look, uh, I have huge respect for what Michael Saylor did, but I think he's quite unique in that he is effectively the controlling shareholder of that company. He controls the board as a CEO. Um, so I think that he is able to move a lot faster than your average public company. And he himself had gone down that rabbit hole with Bitcoin, understood the wealth preservation qualities of it, and saw his cash pile, I think he referred to it as a, as a melting iceberg um, in, in US dollars. And certainly I think, you know, I spent a lot of time, to, time trying to wake people up to the fact that what is happening with COVID is changing the basis of the monetary supply uh, that we've seen in, you know, over the course of 40 years. So, you know, over the course of 40 years, you've had a gradual increase in monetary supply which has been pretty painful in inflationary terms. If you're trying to you know, buy a house or, or buy a highly valued asset that people gen generally tend to fight over and you know, scarce assets exist, you know, if, if it's anything from high-end education through to a nice penthouse apartment in Manhattan, you know, these are eff effectively also scarce assets right, that people will fight over and pay more and more pri higher prices for. So when it comes to Bitcoin and your question around how do you, you reconcile what is going on with monetary supply increases and actually say, how am I going to protect my wealth? Bitcoin actually often becomes one of the only answers because it is such a, an easy asset to move around. Um, it has attributes uh, far better than even gold. Um, and it has that sort of same store of value uh, attribute that, that more and more people are starting to recognize. And back to societal beliefs and belief systems and constructs around money, the more people that believe it, the, the more uh, it becomes a reality. And so I think that, um, I think that to your question, you know, where does it go next or how do we want this to go next? I think it's more a case of just trying to make sure that people that are at risk of losing all their wealth understand what a proposition Bitcoin is in terms of preserving that wealth. And that's, you know, I, um, I get accused of being a preacher sometimes by, by my friends and family. I'm sure everyone in the Bitcoin industry does. But um, it's because, you know, you re I really want to make sure that people have an understanding of this. Not just like, I get asked all the time, should I buy Bitcoin now? I'm like, you should be buying Bitcoin constantly. Like, that's, that's my answer to that question. It's not a price point. It's not something that you're going to go, okay, at 5,000 is a better trade than 10,000. Well, sure, yeah, it's a lower price, but effectively, you still want to be acquiring now as much as possible because this COVID response, this central bank response to this pandemic is just coiling the spring of all scarce assets. And Bitcoin, I think, could end up flying more than anything. So if you were to list like top three reasons, why do you think uh, Bitcoin is the perfect treasury asset? What would that be? Um, I think that you've got the first truly scarce digital asset. It's in terms of network effect against any other perceivably payment token, it destroys everybody. Like complete destruction. Like it's, it's just gaining network like a black hole all the time. 
You know, you look at hash power increasing constantly. Um, you've got more and more um, wallets increasing. You've got Bitcoin uh, flows on exchange dropping, like getting pulled off exchange wallets. Um, I would say that more and more people are getting to the point of realizing that this is the way to store value. And so you're going to have a situation where it becomes highly competed over. And the only thing that happens to something that is truly scarce when it gets to highly competed over is the price goes up. And that brings it into probably the third point is around game theory of price, right? The price going higher actually drives more and more interest in Bitcoin. And there's a meme across Twitter called NGU, number go up, but actually it's very powerful. And I believe it very strongly that, you know, I watch Bitcoin go up, I panic. If I watch it go down, I'm going, great. But if it goes up, I start panicking. I'm like, just don't have enough. Yeah. No, I, there's another um, argument that I want to bring up and I heard it from uh, uh, some of my friends who I'm also trying constantly to explain it to them and they're from traditional mm -hmm. banking space. And they tell me, listen, we respect you. We know like, you know, you guys are doing a great job. Bitcoin, I would buy it just for fun. But again, like I say, if you're talking about allocating like billions of dollars, like with an industry that is highly manipulated, right? And somebody can short the market like easily, like someone who holds, let's say even one to 2%, like you know, the market, like and can manipulate it with derivative uh, strategies. So my question to you, like how would you, I would say rebuttal, like I you know this uh, argument saying that like, it's, it's still like a, uh, relatively small market cap, like, and, and we know that it's not gonna die anymore. Like, it's still like it's already this level of dominance that the one that you explained. Mm -hmm. However, it is still under risk of being manipulated. And if uh, even even a few, let's say, a few more companies will uh, like acquire like big portion of Bitcoin with a hundred year view, as something like Michael Saylor style, right? Um, they 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 could have a hard time like and if somebody manipulates price on a short term on a long term nothing happens right if that's their bet and they're having like this risk I think I'm sure they discussed it but how would you explain this portion? I explain it as yeah it's definitely being manipulated and the, it's being manipulated because you have so much bullish news happening and the price is barely moving. Um, and I think that the reason for that is it's the same trade across finance. I'll never forget one of my biggest hedge fund clients. He called me one day and I, I'd been trying to buy this convertible bond for him for months. And he calls me up. He's like, Rich, I need you to sell $500 million worth of this bond. I was like, what are you doing? He's like, you got to sell it to buy it. And I didn't completely understand what he meant by that until I started trying to talk to everybody in the market and say, hey, you know, if I've got a sizable seller of this bond, you know, what would you give me some sort of bid? I want to try and maybe take it down in, in, in clips. And be like, actually, how big? $500 million. Oh, uh, okay. Add me to the sell. And if you get a buyer, let me know. And yes, price manipulation. And this is what big, big buyers do. When they're trying to buy something, they'll just go and say, right, I'm going to smash the market and just flush out all the weekends because I want to buy it. And so, yeah, it is being manipulated. That, that's my answer. 
Okay. It's being manipulated because the institutions want to buy more of it. So you, you don't you don't foresee that one big institution can actually um, like I try to create the bearish trend to buy more, right? You know, like and like for for a short for for a short period of time. Yeah, look, I, I think there will be hedge funds that come into the space that are extremely sharp at doing that, and that they will do that. And I think it's probably already being done by some of the whales. Um, you know, they get to see a lot of the flows, a lot of what's happening. Many of them run their own exchanges. And so they, they see. And, you know, they come from trading backgrounds. And, you know, many of the institutional guys that came here first are traders. Right. So it's, it's interesting. The one thing I'd say to your friends, as I say to my friends, is do not buy this if you're just buying it for a punt. Because then when it does go down, you're going to sell it. Yeah. But when it goes down, you need to be saying, this is great. I can buy more. Yeah, I 100% you know, support this logic, right? So, but um, uh, to, to close this particular topic, so at what point do you think, like at what side, market cap size, you know, we think will be so, so stable enough so there will be, like it will be hard to manipulate it. Let's say like the milestones over a trillion dollar market cap or $10 trillion market cap, right? So what is your view on that? I don't know. I mean, you look at you look at what happened in uh, London LIBOR markets uh, with the FX market. Yeah. <laughs> how big are those markets? It's uh, it's a how long is a piece of string question. I don't I don't know the answer to that. I think general financial markets are manipulated every day, and you know, big big hedge funds that that want to participate. Uh, that's that's what they do. Um, you know, they're they're there to squeeze out profits every way they can. So, um, yeah, I don't know the answer to that question, Constantine. Yeah, that's good. I, I think here I actually respect you more because it's a, it's a rhetorical question. So I thought maybe you bring some context to it because I, I, I do agree that there's no good answer because uh, people are trying to find this uh, easy explanation, you know, like to it's going to grow to a certain degree and then we're going to feel safe. But there's no safe harbor in the money market that's the thing like you know too big to fail especially in the, in the current situation it's i don't think it's uh, it's it's a viable uh solution right now with anything like i with our economy second trillion dollar like in debt like you know do we understand when yeah. the dollar is going to fail or is it already failed we just don't know about it right? <laughs> yeah i mean that's a that's a whole different can of worms but i mean the one thing i would say is that you're going to see as this grows into you know more hundreds of billions and then eventually trillions of dollars in market cap one thing that will diminish is volatility mm -hmm. um so i think that 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 in itself will be a much larger factor in helping institutions get comfortable i mean i do i often do presentations to wealth managers and investors about why they should be buying bitcoin and the biggest biggest point they always highlight is volatility and I think when we see a diminishing of volatility then you're going to get a much much larger uh, overall allocation and adoption that will be when it's higher and so the whole it will all play to its itself eventually yeah the volatility is uh, yeah it's, it's a big factor and a lot of folks mm -hmm. are talking about is if it's something 
crazy what they don't follow. You know, there's uh, I follow quite uh, often also uh, Mike McGlone, you know, and uh, senior commodity strategist in Bloomberg Intelligence. And he posts uh, recently he posted some great numbers, like you know how actually like uh, you know how, how the volatility factor right now is, is in Bitcoin is actually decreasing. And uh, if we actually compare apples to apples and not just talking about myth in the industry, like it is decreasing tremendously. And I, I, I think it's will decrease even more. Yeah, uh, yeah so, exactly. And I think, but, but still, because it's so early, people always look back at those early periods and be like, yeah, that's just crazy. And dismiss it on that basis. And they'll continue to dismiss it because they want to dismiss it. And, you know, I, I can't tell you the amount of educated, smart investors some, some of them leading some of the world's largest financial institutions saying, well, I don't understand Bitcoin or, or Bitcoin's a scam and still saying this, this sort of stuff. And I'm like, have you even read the white paper? Have you even looked at this? No, I don't have time for that. Again, which is fine. It, it's their choice. And um, I, I also respect people who would say that I don't understand it. And I, and at least like they're open-minded to learn mm. uh, as opposed to people who are just, you know, they're, they're hypocrites and they're trying to throw some myth, which, you know, they, they don't exist. And uh, we've seen a lot of fire chats, uh, fireside chats, you know, like with uh, top advisors in the industry. I don't want to put exact names, but uh, we all know about right. the, the difference between Bitcoin and gold, the difference between like an store of value and you know, logically, if you listen intellectually to the arguments of, you know, let's say it was some Eric Voorhees, right? You know, so you do understand that he's correct in all terms and he's almost like winning if that's the word you can apply to the conversation. Mm -hmm. But um, the other topic which I want to um, discuss with you is also like, you know, it's indigenous capital is a boutique investment bank, right? And you talked about the securitization uh, aspect of the, your advisory, like in distribution uh, arm. And we've heard, we've heard recently, like, you know, some big news about the Kraken that has received the first charter uh, bank license in Wyoming, which is like, a great news for the industry. So I know you are, um, you are under the FCA, like, you know, the UK regulator, right? So, um, so guide me a little bit, like, you know, so what's the next step for this, you know, for this business line? For Digenex Capital, the, the exactly. investment bank. Yeah, so, so for us, we're in the process of getting licensing uh, from Dubai, uh, so Category 4 licensing in Dubai, uh, which allows us to do same same activity as we do in the UK under the FCA-regulated entity. So that's corporate finance, that's distribution of securities. Um, a lot more of the distribution side um, will be handled through partnership. So it's unlikely at this point in time that we'll be going globally around the world uh, looking for licensing, but certainly origination, you know, can, can now be done obviously in the UK, but also uh, soon to be in the Middle East as well. I think that's quite key. Um, we have yet stayed away from the United States, um, really wanting to, I mean, we don't onboard any US clients uh, to our platform anywhere. Um, so we, we are trying to get to the point of, of understanding how the regulator is going to move forward. Obviously, you've got state-by-state -state regulation in many aspects of the business. Um, you've got FinCEN, SEC, CFTC, everybody um, getting involved. And so I think that 
until such time that we get real clarity around a way or a, a clear path to move forward or roadmap to move forward in the US. Um, you know, any, any work that we would do in the US would be purely uh, on an advisory basis or um, in partnership with, with other license holders. So let me ask you, you I, I'm sure you've looked into the Kraken like news and they've published, you know, several explanatory notes and uh, you know the papers, you know, how did they go through the regulations and they pound the payment like Kathleen Long and uh, her group and the you know basically like the state uh, also regulators, they did a great job for several years. So have you looked into let's say Wyoming as an option, right, for you to even explore this route? Hello, I mean we're, we're operating in various different jurisdictions with various different regulators at the moment. As I say, the U.S. just, it's not on the roadmap for us at all at this point in time. Um, but yeah, look, we operate in the U.K., uh, Switzerland, Hong Kong, Singapore. Um, so all of those jurisdictions plus Dubai as well now um, coming down the road. So we, we certainly have our hands full uh, with different regulators globally. As I say, U.S. just... It's not part of the immediate roadmap. Um, we're starting to put boots on the ground around research and strategy uh, in the United States, um, but that will take a little bit of time to percolate through um, until we can start offering our, our services to U.S. clients. Yeah, and I, as I remember also you operate and you have uh, uh, operations in Vietnam and France even, and, and Puerto Rico. So Puerto Rico, uh, uh, can you elaborate on this part? Because you know, Puerto Rico is uh, is very <laughs> is very connected to U.S. As, as I'm sure you know, right? So yeah, so we have some marketing uh, marketing team uh, in Puerto Rico. Um, we are in Vietnam. It's pure development, so it's nothing nothing financial services. It's just on the dev side. Um, where, where else did you mention? France, I think, is just someone lives cross-border with Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And Vietnam. Yeah, yeah Vietnam, uh, Vietnam is one of our development hubs. So, uh, yeah, we just... There's some amazing talent down in Vietnam. We have... Actually, our Vietnam office is, uh, is a really fantastic team. Um, got a, a really great energy down there. And uh, just uh, we've managed to really put together some, some fantastic people. So, uh, I think Vietnam will continue to expand for us. It's a very, very solid jurisdiction. A lot of very talented developers as well. So the, the only thing which I want to also clarify, because uh, after the news of your NASDAQ listing, which is again, SEC approved, yeah. and uh, people might think, well, you're saying that you're not interested in the, like for now, for this particular like in you know, a moment of time uh, in North America or like specifically in the US, right? I didn't say we weren't interested. <laughs> I didn't say we weren't interested. <laughs> well, let's say it's not your market. It's a very important market, but yeah, I'm sure, I but I'm we it's not your focus for now, right? You know, like to yeah. be regulated specifically, right? So, mm -hmm. how, uh, why? What well, people might ask you? So, one, why then list a particular Nasdaq because you can list in Toronto Stock Exchange or some of the European exchanges, well, like you know, obviously. Where else are you going to list a technology company? Where's the, where's the best? The world's leading technology exchange. NASDAQ. All day long. All day long. There's no other option. Yeah. Like, I mean, US is, is forefront of, of many, many things, right? 
And uh, the, the only reason, and I, and I will reiterate, we're very interested in the US market. And I think that there are a number of clients that would be very, very keen to onboard to Equos and onboard to DigiNex Access and even onboard to Digivolt. But um, yeah, it's just, it, it's not something that we can achieve in the immediate term. Yeah. So uh, yeah, we've got to be realistic. You can't, you can't uh, do world domination in, uh, in just a, a year or so. Yeah, which is great. I mean, you can. I'm sure you, as you mentioned, you can. You can do it. Uh, you can accomplish it through a partnership with some of the entities yeah. in the best, right? And there, there's a lot of opportunities for joint ventures, etc. So, just wanted to clarify this particular <laughs> angle, right? So, uh, again, so you, you uh, if you want to talk about a little bit like more and deeper and about Equus and like about the compliance, you know, the the uh, the fairness, the trust, you know, the innovative like aspect of it, and uh, as a, as a summary, I want you also to uh, surrounded by like what value does it bring to the ecosystem? Because people hear oh, another exchange, right? Or out of a thousand mm. other exchanges. So what what's what's the differentiator? Yeah, no, I think I think the 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 key thing to understand about Diginex is the ecosystem value. Like it's it's all accreting to making that equos experience number one, right? You have a custodian that's been built to Ministry of Defense standards in terms of cybersecurity. So tick box for institutions getting comfortable, right? First of all, and as I say, that's getting plugged into Equos as we speak. You've got an asset manager. Now this is really important. So our asset manager is actually operating a fund of funds. So our fund of funds invests in crypto asset managers across the industry. And over the course of the last two and a half years, we've ended up establishing contact with 250 different funds in the industry. So we've collated a lot of feedback about the issues they're having, having around settlement or capital efficiency or collateralization that's efficient. The, all these sorts of things have actually helped us design Equos for the asset managers that have been operating in this space for so long and saying, these are our problem spots, right? And obviously having trust and security is, is a very, very key part of it. So all of that, a lot of that was informed by what we started building back at, all the way back in January, 2018 with that asset manager. And then you come over to DigiNex Access. So DigiNex Access is, is just a phenomenal platform. It's a, it's a multi-venue trading platform that plugs into two of the world's largest portfolio management systems. So those are trading technology companies, FIS and Itivity. These are huge, huge institutional trading system uh, companies. And um, what is amazing about this is, A, it provides an amazing on-ramp into crypto because they've actually, for the first time, got a crypto trading platform that's integrated into their PMS directly. So any hedge fund could go to FIS and say, hey, I want to start trading Bitcoin. How could I integrate that with Front Arena? Already done. Here's your trading platform, DigiNex Access. Right? So we have that partnership with both. That gives the user access to not just Equos, but to Binance, BitMEX, Coinbase, any exchange they want to use, they can just uh, sign up with, 
get the IP, API keys and plug in. And we've done all the integration already. Mm-hmm. So we're integrating with, integrated with the majority of, of the major exchanges, but obviously also Equos. So again, as a smaller starting exchange, we get past the whole integration problem. So we just give institutional users Equos, oh, sorry, uh, uh, Diginex access into Equos directly. So it actually gets around a lot of the integration issues. And so again, it's just plugging in everything faster and quicker into that exchange. And then obviously it's also that future trade when you think about when eventually institutional managers become more and more comfortable with blockchain technology, with booking digital assets, and they go, okay, actually, now I want to start trading these things. Well, at that point in time, Equos will uh, develop into a security exchange as well, digital security, and then you'll have that full marketplace. And then with that custodian integrated, you have borrowing and lending um, around the whole platform. You have all the derivatives around it. And effectively, that becomes your private bank or as a retail user or, or a prime broker as an institutional user. So you just pull that whole ecosystem together. We've been obviously designing this over, over a few years and, uh, and we're really excited that now it's, it's all finally come together and in perfect timing with our NASDAQ listing. Yeah, man, and it's impressive. So it, I've also read somewhere that, you know, it's uh, uh, the solution is your matching engine is ro- uh, ro- as robust that it can handle more than 100,000 uh, transactions, you know, per second. Right, so this is mm. with the API and REST API keys, you know, like, and uh, you do yeah. support, as I understand, you also support WebSockets and uh, yeah, um, e- every API fix possibility. Fix 4.4, which is the institutional mm-hmm. usage. So all all the banks, all the hedge funds, all the private banks, they all connect to each other in exchanges via a Fix 4.4 API, and so, we're one of the very few exchanges that have offered 4.4. So actually, most of the institutions onboarding to us are using, already using the fixed connectivity. And, and this is, I think, one of the most important aspects. And specifically, I, I'm also, I was trading uh, futures myself, and uh, I have a lot of friends who are still doing, uh, working in the high-frequency uh, trading uh, world. And, you know, for them, nanoseconds matter, right? For them, like, it's not like just a second, it's nanoseconds. Yeah. Those connections are vital. and. I mean, I, not to not to criticize a lot of our other big exchanges. You know, they're doing derivative, but there's only five biggest that you know everybody knows them who are trading in this market. So they don't have those like you know institutional grade you know like web sockets and fixes and uh, like you know. And this is a big problem because they're losing those nanoseconds. They're losing a lot of like arbitrage opportunities. So my question to you is basically like for. For this particular audience, right, who are traders and they're they're playing, but still like, oh, the the market is still open for a lot of arbitrage, yeah, uh, good place. And how how do, are you looking to cater the derivative market in the future as well? Yeah, derivatives are very clearly part of our roadmap. So we launched perpetuals this quarter. Um, we're launching options, full suite of options next quarter. Um, and so it's really just about making sure that you've got all the infrastructure in place to accommodate that. I mean, it's back to that portfolio margining, right? You don't want to be going long an option and short the spot and getting stopped out on one and not on the other. And then you end up with delta risk uh, that you can't handle. So 
what we we have, have really done is make sure that everything's in place to accommodate all of that in the very beginning. And when you get that collateral base of your digital assets stored within the platform that you're, you know, you're using for financing, borrowing and lending, getting an interest rate on your Bitcoin, and then being able to leverage that as a collateral base to trade derivatives or to, to, uh, to do all, all sorts of other things around the product set, then really, you've, as I say, you've created this prime, prime broker or this, uh, this private bank. So yeah, derivatives very much uh, center of our roadmap. So there's third quarter, right? That's when you release the rate. Yeah. So we, our, our quarter, our year ends at the end of March. So our third quarter is uh, is this quarter. Listen, now uh, we're we're looking forward to it. That that will be another way how <laughs> how we can cooperate. So, um, no. Th so this is uh, this is incredible. Like you know, and I'm sure we can talk about it. Like you know, for hours. So I, I as a, as a, one of the last points, you know, I want to ask you. Like personally, you mentioned um, Sapiens. I love this book as well. Like you know, you've got No Harari. I've uh, uh, I've, I think I've read all of his books, right? And uh, uh, maybe you can name some other books that actually inspired you. And if, if I may uh, uh, ask you even like, what, if you were to pick one other book than Sapiens that actually impacted your life tremendously. Um, impacted my life tremendously. I would say nothing impacted it in quite that, that degree. Um, I uh, I read the book. Um, what is it called? Um, the Price of Tomorrow by Jeff Booth. Have you read that book? No, I did not. I've heard about it, but yeah. So it's uh, it's a very good book. It talks about um, basically the fact that deflation is our only answer, um, and the fact that everything that's happening in technology is massively deflationary. Um, and this is obviously really accurate. We see this all the time. But the way that governments are trying to address it is actually by inflating the money supply to a degree that you actually do get inflation, right? But the problem is that it's not focused on those goods in the CPI basket. And so you're, you're just ending up ballooning the cost of school fees or that penthouse apartment in Manhattan. And, uh, I, you know, I think, unfortunately, that there's, a, there's another aspect to it. And there is the fact that all our governments have such huge amounts of debt. And so the idea of actually, you know, allowing technology to deflate to the degree that it would, that is just completely unpassable because the debt burden would be too great. And then you're going to have a huge debt crisis. And so I think that, you know, monetary, monetary base inflation is the only way that we're going to go. Um, I wouldn't say that that particularly changed my view on things that really validated my view on things, but I think it's a very important book uh, for people that are trying to understand what is actually really going on and where we are in the point of the world around technology and the way that technology is compounding to such a ridiculous degree that the world that we are going to live in in 10 years time, we can't even imagine what that's going to look like. Yeah. Uh, and maybe the, as a closing point, maybe three, uh, three people, uh, it, 
they may be with us today or may not no longer be with us, right? And you know, or may come mm. philosophers, economists, like you know, whoever you decide that actually also inspired you in your life. Yeah, I uh, I went on a um, a sort of a a, a mindset and leadership uh, training uh, camp a few years ago, and um, the um, the uh, the guy leading it, he said, what you should have in your in your mind is a board. You have a board of directors of people that you consult around your life. And what you have to imagine is how they would react to certain things um, that, that you're asking them about. Like, you know, what should I do uh, about my marriage? Who would you consult on your board around that? Or what should I do around my business? And who you, you would consult on that? So on my board, um, I think I can remember three for sure. I had Elon Musk, um, certainly as, a, as an entrepreneur, wanting to consult him around uh, the way that we build the business. But it's definitely, you know, I mean, he's, a, he's just phenomenal in terms of what he's done and an inspiration to so many people that, that anything is achievable um, with determination and relentlessness and, and, uh, and an understanding of, of, of the basics of, of physics and, and these sorts of things. Um, I think Obama... Uh, Barack Obama, not particularly because of, I, I favored his politics, but just in terms of the way that he was able to articulate his thought process and um, the way he spoke. I think he was probably one of the greatest articulators um, that I've ever seen in, uh, in politics across the world. I think he, he was a great speaker and he was really able to clearly always articulate his message in very succinct um, but, but clear points. Um, who else? Uh, Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett, even though he doesn't believe in Bitcoin, um, I think that his investment process is extremely solid and, uh, and, and must be respected. Yeah, it's uh, a great pick. Uh, uh, yeah, so I, I really, really appreciate your time, uh, Richard. I, I think uh, your insights are incredibly valuable i think what you are doing with diginax and the entire team i know a lot of your <laughs> team members as well like and uh, and it's it's really important and i wish you mm. and you continue with all, all the milestones <laughs> on your on your roadmap and that you will mm. you know even help help more with education proliferation of digital assets securitization and eventually which will end up like you know and the uh, inflation-resistant asset that we are all benefit from, right, as an industry. Uh, so, yeah, thank you yeah. So much for all your efforts. Yeah, and more broadly, I mean, I hope, I hope for the benefit of the world, we can achieve our vision of bringing digital assets to the world. Um, and, uh, yeah, look, thank you again, Constantine, for having me on. It was a pleasure. Yeah, likewise. Thank you, Richard.